This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families, because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 86, recorded on March 19th, 2021. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Brenda Weigel from the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you, Tim, and uh, hello, everyone. It's an honor to, uh, again, be part of this wonderful podcast. So today we have a special guest named Sam Blackman. Sam is a native of Philadelphia. He earned, he's a philosopher actually. He earned his BA in philosophy from the University of Chicago. He then got his MD and his PhD in pharmacology from the University of Illinois. Sam is a native of Philadelphia. He earned, he's a philosopher actually. He earned his BA in philosophy from the University of Chicago. He then got his MD and his PhD in pharmacology from the University of Illinois of Chicago's College of Medicine and did a pediatric residency where he and I met in Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And then he went on to do a pediatric hematology oncology fellowship at Children's Hospital in Boston and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He's held many senior medical director type roles at many different uh, pharmaceutical companies like Merck, uh, Glasgow Smith Klein, Seattle Genetics, Juno Therapeutics, Silverback Therapeutics, Mova Pharma Incorporated, and has now started his own company as founder and chief medical officer of Day One Biopharmaceuticals. He also is a published poet, has published many letters in the New York Times, and was the 2017 Moth Storyteller Grand Slam winner in Seattle. I've watched him on YouTube and I encourage you all to do the same. He tells great stories. So we're excited to have you here today, Sam. Welcome to TWIPO. Oh, thanks, Tim. Thanks, uh, Brenda. It's, it's great to see you both. And uh, uh, just so excited to, uh, to get a chance to talk to uh, two of my favorite people in pediatric oncology. Oh, you're too kind. So how about we start with just a little bit of your background? I touched on some of those things, but maybe just tell us a real quick story since you're a great storyteller on something that motivated you uh, someone who motivated you? Why did you get into this business? What drives you? What, what, what's the basis of your passion? Oh, yeah, thanks. It's a, it's, a, it's a great question. You know, it's interesting. I'm the firstborn son of a pediatrician. So, you know, many, many people think that, you know, my, my, I was, you know, I was born with a silver stethoscope in my mouth and my fate was cast, you know, right from the beginning. But I actually, uh, as I was growing up, uh, as evidenced by the fact that I studied philosophy, had zero interest in going into medicine. As a matter of fact, I did everything that I could to not go into medicine. Uh, and that's mainly because I think I was mostly trying to piss off my father uh, as I was growing up. And uh, somehow uh, it turns out that uh, having been raised in a, in a medical household, that was always a comfortable spot for me. It was always something that, uh, you know, the language and the cadence and the, the periodicity of my father being on call and the drama, uh, that, that all just resonated with me. So you know, when I finished college, uh, I ended up getting a job working in anesthesia. I was actually, my very first job was as a clinical research assistant running phase two and phase three anesthesia trials at the University of Chicago. 
And I realized that that that, that was absolutely what I had to do. Uh, and I managed to finagle myself into, into medical school and uh, thinking that I was actually going to be an anesthesiologist. And then when I was a third year medical student and I did my pediatric rotation, one of the very first pediatric patients I saw was a kid with diamond black fan anemia. And I was just so struck by both the underlying science, right? That you could have a disease that would take out an entire lineage of cells in a patient and nobody knew why, as well as you know, the relationship that the attending pediatric hematologist oncologist had with the family. I, I knew right then that I had found not just the specialty for me, but really the subspecialty. And uh, I knew very early coming into residency that I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. And it was there that I, you know, in almost my first month took care of uh, pediatric brain tumor patients on the tower. I was doing a sort of step down ICU rotation and it just cinched it for me. Uh, it was those very early experiences and they were all patient-based that made me realize, hey, this is the field for me. And I tell people, and when they ask like, why PT mock? I said, it's like asking me, why Why did I marry my wife? I, I, I knew when I met her that that, that that was the right person for me. That's that's great. Uh, it's it's really important to find one's passion. It's something we talk to about our, with our trainees all the time. You have to figure out, you know, really what that best fit is. And for you, your best fit included a lot of industry work. You went into the field of, industry pretty early on in your career, you know, a lot of people will go one or the other, academics, taking care of patients, or industry, drug development. And, and in fact, one of, our, I'd say, our frustrations on the academic side is, is actually getting new therapies to patients. And, and that takes a, a major uh, industry involvement with all the uh, investments and regulatory issues that need to be covered. So what drove you in that direction early on? So it was, so a couple of things. Uh, there were there were really probably two or two or three things that that tilted me in that direction. Uh, the first was when I was a resident and then as a fellow, I ended up on by by some odd set of, of circumstances, ended up on a scientific advisory board for Gardasil as Gardasil was being developed. Uh, this was through some work that I'd done with the American Medical Association and and Merck at the time was looking for somebody with an interest in pediatrics and cancer. Uh, and I kept telling them, hey, listen, I'm a, I'm a fellow, I'm not sure I'm quite the right person that you're looking for. But they said, no, 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 that'll be fine. And so I was on a Gardasil uh, scientific advisory board with some really remarkable people like Anna Giuliano from down in Miami, who's sort of a world authority on human papillomavirus. And I was so impressed at the breadth and depth of the work that went into the testing and ultimately the approval of Gardasil that I it opened my eyes to the real power of industry scale drug development. It also opened my eyes to some of the other weird things that, that I, I, I think affect decision-making in industry. And you could see both the good that industry can do in bringing forward a vaccine that would prevent cancer and prevent a lot of, uh, of other HPV associated diseases and really drive that forward, not just for women, you know, for teenage girls, but for older women and for, for teenage boys and older men but you could also see where their priorities were. What got me to go, go into it was really just sort of the, the, the self-realization at the end of my fellowship that while I loved the idea of the laboratory, I did not love the idea of being in the laboratory. I really liked science, but I knew I was not going to be able to compete effectively with people who were so passionate about it that they could give their, themselves over wholly 
to designing and running experiments and chasing grants. And I also loved taking care of patients. I loved it more than anything. But I also knew that I had a new baby girl at home and I couldn't give myself wholly over to patient care because I needed to save part of myself for my daughter. So uh, a headhunter called and, and, and you know, by an odd set of circumstances, I ended up interviewing a Crystal Meyer Squibb and then Merck. And I realized that, you know, working in drug development would give me a chance to balance my love of science, my love of clinical medicine. And then, you know, my wife says, says to me constantly, you know, I'm a third science, a third medicine and a third schmooze. So it would, it would scratch that itch as well. The ability to connect with people and really harvest interesting ideas and try to find applications for them. So that's how, that's how it really ended up happening. Sam, thanks for that perspective on kind of making the decision from sort of an academic career into a career in, in the pharma industry. And you've had an interesting journey from joining at what people would say is sort of big pharma. Um, and you've, you've worked biotech, small pharma, and now uh, really uh, launched a, a, an initiative um, on your own. Walk us through that journey and kind of compare and contrast some of the, the different real powers and benefits and also some of the, the challenges faced by different uh, types of industry uh, partners. You know, back in 2008, when I made this decision, really 2007, uh, you know, biotech was much, a much smaller space than, than Big Pharma was. Big Pharma was really the driver of, of research and development. And uh, I ended up at Merck because Stephen Friend, who was also a graduate of the Dana-Farber program, had, was at the time running the oncology franchise at Merck, and he, he felt that, that Merck would be a good, a good home. So I knew there were pediatric oncologists in industry. And what I found in retrospect is that Big Pharma is an absolutely wonderful place to learn drug development end-to-end. -end. When I joined Merck, they had us... Uh, most of the new medical directors at the time, which is sort of the entry-level position, sit through two two-week-long courses, and it was nine to five lectures, and it was everything in drug development from high-throughput screening, you know, hit to lead, med you know, med medicinal chemistry, lead optimization, preclinical development, all the way through the other side to late-stage development, medical affairs, commercialization, you know, all of the things, you know, government affairs, reimbursement. And, you know, four weeks of hour-long lectures for eight hours a day barely scratched the surface of the complexity of the work that it takes to get a drug discovered all the way through testing into approval. It was mind-boggling. It was, it was literally like, you know, the matrix and waking up and going, holy cow, I like this whole thing was there. But, you know, when you take a pill or you, you write a prescription, it's almost impossible to fathom all of the people and all the work that goes into it. So, you know, for me, big pharma was a great place to get a fundamental education in the science of pharmaceutical development. However, it is after a while, a hard place to work for somebody who, at least for me, you know, somebody who is restless and creative and was really seeking, you know, that the repeated hit of, you know, I wanna see new science, I wanna see exciting new things um, and, and, and wanted to have, you know, hands in multiple things, you know, big pharmaceutical companies, when you are an individual contributor, you, you really stay in your lane, then you might work with a, you know, a cross-functional team and you might see other aspects of drug development for the project or projects that you're working on. But it's different in a smaller company because you wear multiple hats. You're a lot closer to the business decisions that go into 
you know, shaping the direction of a company. And, and what I found is as I went from big pharma to sort of mid-sized or larger biotech to ultimately a series of startups, Juno, Silverback, Malibu Pharma, and now Day One, uh, how much I really love the dynamic nature and high wire act that is, you know, trying to start a company around a new concept or a new technology or a new mechanism of action. Uh, it's risky. It's uh, really you know, challenging exercise and strategic decision-making. And of course, also requires you to work with people back in the academic world because a small company can't do all the science. So you end up reaching back to other experts and it put me just in the right spot. It was, I've got resources. I'm going to try to move this drug or this program or this concept forward. But I also know that I'm not smart enough to do it. So I'm going to get on the phone or get on email. I'm going to call all of the people that I know who are really smart in this space and we're going to pull them in together to try to solve a really hard problem. How do you move a CAR T cell forward for adult leukemia, a notoriously difficult disease to treat? Or, you know, how do you bring forward a, an, a, an oral agent that may, you know, amplify the sting pathway, but you've got to combine it with radiation? Like, what does clinical development for that look like? And I, I don't have the answers to those questions, but I know smart people who do. And, and that's always been the fun part of biotech. So that's a really interesting perspective. For those of us that aren't not in industry, you must have seen some gaps along the way or some holes that um, led you to eventually want to launch your own company to fill that gap. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, it, it, it's a really good question, Tim. So when I started in big pharma, uh, it was 2008, and that was the year that the European Medicines Association pediatric rule was really first implemented. And this is the rule that the EMA put into place that said, if you want to register a drug in Europe, you have to have a completed and agreed upon pediatric investigation plan or PIP as, as we call them in order for us to accept your application if you want to file for an adult indication. So you have to not only outline the pediatric development path, but we have to agree to the time, we the EMA have to agree to the timelines and it's a contractual obligation. And I ended up mainly just you know, serendipitously because I was the pediatric oncologist on the team, ended up writing a couple of these pips when I was at Merck and, and a couple more when I was at, at, at Glaxo. And I realized the power that industry had to drive drug development forward for pediatric patients if they wanted to, or in this case, if they were forced to. Uh, when I was at Glaxo, I wrote the pediatric investigation plan for dabrafenib. And at the time, Glaxo, who owned the drug, was thinking, oh, we're just going to put it into BRAF mutant melanoma. And I said to the, the team, I said, you could do that, but it's not going to work because people at the European Medicines Association are going to be aware of the fact that there are BRAF mutations in low-grade glioma and longer Hans cell histiocytosis and a bunch of other diseases. So why don't we do development properly and develop dabrafenib for a host of BRAF-altered cancers? And fortunately, they listened and that's exactly what happened. And now you see dabrafenib, you know, in phase two trials in pediatric low-grade glioma, and you see, you know, an expansion of development of that drug now in pediatric spaces. And that's, that's terrific. That's what industry can do if it sets its mind to it. When it doesn't set its mind to it, or if the drug that you've written a PIP for and crafted this development plan doesn't move forward and, you know, to approval for adult indications, that pediatric work that never actually moves forward. So you might have really good science, a really good reason to take a new, new drug into pediatric patients, but it's tied to the adult drug. And if the adult drug doesn't progress, 
the drug never gets a shot in pediatric patients. And that gap has always bothered me. It's what happened, as you know, with the IGF-1R inhibitors. You know, they looked great in a mid-stage trial for Ewing's. They didn't work for adults. And then we were left with this, you know, for a long time, this unresolved question about does IGF-1R work in Ewing sarcoma? It's happened with other drugs. And that problem is the problem that, you know, we set out to solve when Julie Grant from Canaan Partners and I built day one. Brenda, you've probably seen that more than anyone, that phenomenon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and it is that balance, I think, you know, Sam, as you're, you're saying, between the regulatory uh, I would say uh, obligations that that um, are put uh, in place, and then really the opportunities and filling those gaps. Having having said that, there is new um, regulatory guidance in in the U.S. Um, for the with the Race for Children Act. How do you feel that has impacted the landscape? Um, with a lens on both big pharma and on small pharma with regards to additional challenges or opportunities within pediatric oncology drug development? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, Brenda. I, I, I don't know if I can tell you how it's impacted it yet. What I can tell you is I think it is, has the potential to impact uh, the way that both small and large companies think about pediatric drug development uh, in a multitude of manners. I just am not sure exactly how it's going to how it's going to shake out. Let me let me explain a little bit. You know, the Race for Children Act or, or FEDARA 504, uh, as Greg Greenman insists that we refer to it as, um, basically it says that if you are developing a drug against a target that is relevant for pediatric cancer, and these targets are specified on a list that the FDA maintains and updates quarterly, then you must put together a pediatric study plan and that pediatric study plan is different than the European pediatric investigational plan, which is typically phase one through phase three. The pediatric study plan, it doesn't really specify the, the, the breadth of it. It is something that needs to be negotiated with the FDA. Um, we've, gone, we've gone through that process at day one, but it's something that you must do in order, you know, they're going to be checking if you bring forward a, a new drug application and you've not done your pediatric study plan, it's going to be a problem. So. What this means is that small companies and big companies are going to need to start thinking much earlier in development. All right, my target is on that list. I need to actually understand where that drug is going to work. And I think it's going to set up a lot of the same things that, that you know, challenges and benefits that we face with the pediatric investigation plans. You're going to have drug companies now who are going to be thinking about the fact that they need to do some type of development work with their agents in pediatric cancer but that's a lot of drugs and it's a lot of targets. And last time I checked, it's still only 16,000 or so pediatric, new, new pediatric cancers per year of which half are leukemia. So you've got going to have a lot of, of, of development work or development ideas trying to be squeezed into a relatively small patient population. So one thing that we need to think about is how do we balance the incoming load of planning and development activities with a fixed, thankfully, fixed and relatively small number of patients. The second thing uh, we need to understand is, you know, what happens again, if we have that situation of mismatch, you find that a drug is really potentially important for pediatric patients, or we think that there's reason to believe that it should be developed further in pediatric patients, but it doesn't move forward for adult patients. How do we fill that gap, pick up that drug and make sure that if it can provide benefit to children, 
and the, and, and the pediatric oncology and academic research community has reason to believe, how do we make sure that that's carried forward? Because sometimes the financial incentives, you know, for small companies to develop, you know, a drug for a relatively small number of patients, they're just, they're just not there. They don't have the resources. So I don't know exactly how it's going to shake out, uh, but I think it's going to be a really interesting, interesting time. And, and, you know, again, part of the reason that we built day one was so that if that gap occurs, we or companies like day one can potentially come in and say, hey, listen, you know, we've got a team. We, um, you know, we have resources that allow us to, you know, pick these molecules up and carry them forward, focusing on, on kids, maybe also finding a different path for adults. And we can, we, we can, we can try to try to, you know, advance these drugs and create value for patients. Well, I feel like you've just told us the purpose behind day one, but can you tell us a little bit more, first of all, why it's called day one? I think Brent and I both know um, because that's a common phrase we use in pediatric oncology, but our listeners may not, but also uh, embellish a little bit about um, forming forming the company or or what it, it, what you just said is uh, you just illustrated a big gap, but you know, how did you get an idea of how would he fill that gap? You know, as I mentioned, I met Julie Grant, who's a, a venture capitalist at Caden Partners, uh, back in 2018. Uh, I was actually at another company, and I we were pitching to that. I was at Silverback Therapeutics, and we were trying to raise money from Caden. And at the end of our end of our meeting, when I was talking all all about Silverback, as I was getting ready to go, she said, "Hey, you, pediatric guy." would you be interested in talking about pediatric cancer drug development, which honestly, no venture capitalist has ever said to me ever. It's never happened. So I knew that this was something important to follow up on. And, and Julie and I talked about the idea of starting a company that has a focus on this. Julie incidentally had met Susan Weiner, who's a, uh, as you know, a nationally and internationally known uh, advocate in the pediatric oncology space. And Peter Adamson, the former head of Children's Oncology Group, she was aware from a venture capitalist perspective of the unmet need here. And I had been thinking about the same problem, uh, both, you know, my own interests in working with Gilles Vassal and Andy Pearson and Delphine Heenan and Patricia Blanc to accelerate. And so when Julie and I came together, we said, you know, maybe there really is an idea for a company here that would attempt to solve this problem. So we went to Kane and we we, we laid out the idea, uh, the initial sketches of a business plan and Kanan gave us a little bit of seed money to get started and we incorporated and we had to come up with a name for the company. And I remember sitting in my dining room back in Seattle, staring at the ceiling, thinking like every company name that begins with Kinder is just not gonna fit right for us. We were you know, Kinder Farm, that was, that was already taken, Kinder this, we didn't like it. So, so I was thinking about you know, why we were doing this. And, and, and I just had that sort of synapse. When I was at the Farber, my very first week, I'd driven out from Cincinnati to Boston on a Friday and showed up on Monday for orientation. And one of the very first things that they taught us to do, and it was Holcomb Greer and Jenny Mack, uh, you know, at the time said, we're going to teach you how to do a day one talk. And for the non-Boston people, we were like, well, it's a day one talk. And they said, you know, day one talk is the discussion that you're going to have with a patient and their family, when you've secured the diagnosis and you're going to walk them through the fact your child has cancer and this is the diagnosis and this is what the disease is and this is what it means and this is what the treatment is and this is what you know potentially is going to happen and this is how we're gonna get you through it, right? 
it, and these are very long and hard discussions, but they are the hallmark. They're really the bedrock of forming the therapeutic relationship between the oncology treating team and the family. It's how you get them on board for what is going to be, in many cases, a very long and difficult journey for them and their, their, their child. And I thought to myself, you know, what, you know, this is why we're doing this, right? We want there to be other op opportunities, new medicines available at the day one talk. And honestly, I thought if we pull this off, if we can create this company, it's a new way, it's a new day for trying to solve these problems. It, it is day one for what we think would be a, a, a new approach to developing drugs for children with cancer. So I told Julie, I said, why don't we call it day one therapeutics? And, and she, I sent her Jenny and Holcomb's paper from JCO and she read it and she loved it. And I, I called, I actually called a bunch of people at the farm and I'm like, how, you, how would you feel if we named the company day one? And, and the, the response was, was almost universal. And I think what it, what it, what it serves as is a, it's, it's a signal, right? Why we're doing this. Pediatric oncologists get it. They understand when, when it's day one, and we say it's named after the day one, so they understand, right? Now we, now I get what you're trying to do. So uh, it's, it's been, it, that, that's, where the, that's where the name came from. And, uh, and, and, and we're very proud of it. You've certainly had a lot of success raising money and, and launching the company. So congratulations on that. Thank you. It's Sam, thanks for describing your journey. It's incredible um, and it's inspiring. And thank you for that. And I, it, and I wanted to ask you, as you sit today in kind of looking at pediatric oncology drug development, what do you see as kind of two or three of the biggest challenges and two or three of the biggest opportunities um, from, from your perspective in, in biopharma. This is great. Thank you for asking. Because I, I, I really think that this is just a remarkable time. I mean, we really are in a, in a revolutionary period in therapeutic development. And frankly, in, 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 in the biopharmaceutical industry writ large. I mean, just independent of oncology, Look at what we, and the, this is really the royal we, right? It's investigators, it's academic researchers, and it's the biopharmaceutical industry. Look what we've been able to accomplish with regard to vaccine development for COVID-19 in the past year and the implementation of a completely new, completely untested, you know, uh, uh, platform for vaccine development that has, you know, I, my, my brain is swirling with the, you know, sort of what's next questions for that, but it really is a testament to how good we as an industry and we as scientists have gotten at leveraging complex, you know, biology to do good for patients. So I think we're in a, in a remarkable time. With regard to pediatric cancer drug development specifically, I, I think in terms of the opportunities there, there really are many, and 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 a lot of it comes from increased, a, a deeply increased understanding of the biological underpinnings of childhood cancer, and this is not just from sequencing, right? As we begin to understand the relationship between the immune system and cancers in children, and certainly a deep understanding that we already have between the immune system and cancers in adults, I think the science, you know, of you know, tumor host interactions, tumor, tumor microenvironment interactions, you know, the, you know, underlying genomic drivers of cancers, the amount of information that we're seeing from pediatric cancers is now catching up and, and expanding at the rate that it did with adult cancers. 
And that allows us to match therapies better. And I can only see substantial progress coming for things like precision medicine approaches and hopefully an increased understanding of the host uh, tumor interactions will also predict for an increased understanding of how to create or use existing immunotherapeutics for childhood cancer. So that's, that's one opportunity. The, the, the more work that's being done to define what drives childhood cancers and, and, and maintains childhood cancers, the more that we can target existing therapies. The second is, uh, you know, something that, ha that, that I'm particularly excited about is I think we understand the intersection set between the drivers of childhood cancer and the drivers of pediatric cancer. So these bioinformatic approaches, as they come together, adults and pediatrics and looking at cancer across the age spectrum allows us to see, right, in that intersection set, here are targets that are relevant to both pediatric and adult cancers. And these are the types of things that I think will allow companies, both big and small, to make sure that we bring pediatric patients along at the same pace as we're doing drug development for adult patients. As, as we subset adult cancers and they get to smaller and smaller subsets, and people understand that rare cancers in adults are diseases worth developing new drugs for, those smaller adult subsets begin to get to the same size as some of the subsets for pediatric cancer. All of a sudden the economics are like, all right, you know, adult pediatric. And now we just need to get people comfortable with the idea of developing drugs for children with the same intensity that you do for adults. So that I'm also excited about. I think it's just a general shift. And we see this in all of the small companies that are focused on rare cancers or rare diseases. I think the challenges are just data, you know, the two big challenges for me are data sharing and organization, right? Which is, you know, like I said at the beginning, we only have so many patients. How are we going to prioritize, you know, uh, patients for clinical trials and really make sure that we're, we're, we're bringing the, the highest value therapeutics forward? And then the second is data sharing. At the end of the day, registries and natural history data are going to be important. Liberating that data, making sure that, you know, if it's a cancer that only affects 100 kids per year, we can see the data for all 100 of those kids per year to make decisions or design synthetic control arms for clinical trials or what have you. That data sharing is, 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 is critical. That's a big challenge that I think we need to, to face as a, as, a, as a combined community. Sam, I think we could talk to you for days and days and days. So we really appreciate all of your insights today and it's terrific work and we're excited for you and, and your company and hoping that you make rapid inroads into childhood cancer therapy. But I think we're going to have to call it there. We will have to invite you on to a future episode so you can give us a progress report, if you will. Uh, and we appreciate your doing that um, in advance. So, um, Brenda, thanks for being here as a co-host. Appreciate all your great questions. Thank you. And thank you, Sam, for a wonderful discussion. And congratulations on day one and uh, the future ahead. Thank you. Thank you both very much. And, uh, and thank you for all the work that you do. I, I desperately miss taking care of patients. And I, I'm so grateful to, to people who, who do it every day. And, uh, and, and, and you guys are doing the work that you do. Uh, you're, essential, you're essential to uh, partners to us. And, and you, you both have been an inspiration to me and to my team at day one. So thank you. We appreciate that. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. And remember, the more we learn, communicate share ideas and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight and thanks for listening and watching to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. 
We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonthdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.